All right, today we're going to kick off just a short kind of mini-series of sermons beginning with the title, Why Jesus Came, okay? Let me just kind of get our minds going in that direction for just a moment. Asking the question, why, can be helpful sometimes. Um, The why question helps us identify meaning in what we observe, right? And meaning is something that we're all very concerned with, whether, whether we realize it or not. As soon as we learn to talk, what question do we begin asking our parents? Even annoyingly so. Why? Mommy, why? Daddy, why? All the parents know what I'm talking about. And then as we get older, we continue to search for meaning. We continue asking the question, why? It's one of these big, you know, meta questions. Questions of our existence, you know, it comes up in every person's mind at some point or another. Why? Why am I here? Why is the world the way it is? And so on and so forth. Why, why, why? And um, I was reading about the novelist Rudyard Kipling the late 19th and 20th century novelist, probably best known by us for writing The Jungle Book, okay? Uh, He was someone who loved to ask the question, why? And one time he said that why was one of the most, and he used this phrase, why is one of the most honest serving men who taught me all I know? In other words, Asking and investigating the question of why in, in all sorts of context help him, helped him learn everything that he had learned. And I think around this Christmas season that we call Advent, asking the question why is useful here as well. And I hope that it'll just serve to enlarge our vision and our appreciation for what it is that we celebrate at Christmas time. We celebrate in a special, you know, focused kind of way the incarnation of the Son of God. The eternal Son of God, co-equal with the Father and the Spirit, became flesh, became man. He entered physically into this creation. He added to his divine nature a human nature. And just as we talked about in our prayer meeting this morning, that blows my mind just to think about the incarnation. God himself stooping to become one of us. Amazing. Charles Spurgeon said it this way, Sing, sing, O universe, till thou hast exhausted thyself, yet thou canst not chant an anthem so sweet as the song of the incarnation. Another man described Jesus' incarnation this way. I love these short statements that make us think, from the heights of glory to the depths of shame, from the wonders of heaven to the wickedness of earth, from exaltation to humiliation, from dignity to debasement, from worship to wrath, 
from the halls of heaven to the nails of earth, from the coronation to the curse, from the glory place to the gory place. And he says, in Bethlehem, humility and glory in their extremes were joined. Born in a stable, cradled in a cattle trough, wrapped in swaddling clothes of poverty, no room for him who made all rooms, no place for him who made and knows all places. Oh, deep humiliation of the, cre- of the Creator, born of the creature woman, but in his descent was the dawn of mercy. Because we cannot ascend to him, he descends to us. I love that. We sang earlier about that incredible condescension by Jesus when he came down from his glory. So the question before us for the next couple of weeks will be, why? Why did he do it? What purpose did the triune God have in mind, Father, Son, and Spirit, in this mysterious event that we call the Incarnation? Now, I guess we ought to say this anytime we're asking the why question. We ought to clarify at the outset. Sometimes God does things for his own secret reasons, and we don't know why. Sometimes we ask him why, and we don't have a straightforward answer, and we just have to trust God that he has his own good purpose in whatever he's doing, right? But other times... He does things, and then he plainly tells us in his word why he did it. And when it comes to the incarnation, the scriptures actually give us multiple reasons why he did it. So many reasons, in fact, that we will not exhaust them. We're not even going to try to do that. Instead, we're just going to limit ourselves to talking about three of them for the next three weeks. One today, one next week, and then the third week would be our service on Christmas Eve. So... Today's thought is, why did Jesus come? Answer, to bring peace. Let's see if we can meditate on that this morning together. Now, we're going to look probably at a lot of different scriptures today, but the first place I'd like for us to look at in scripture is the second chapter of Ephesians. If you can turn in your Bible to Ephesians 2. Give you a second to find it, but we'll be in Ephesians 2, 13 to 17. Ephesians 2, verses 13 to 17. This is the word of the living and true God. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both, that's referring to Jew and Gentile, by the way, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh 
the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. We'll stop right there. Now, we can't do like a full exegesis of all those verses today, but what we're going to do is just focus on what it said regarding this reason for the coming of Jesus. What did it say? Verse 14 said, He himself is our peace. And then also in verse 16, that Jesus reconciled us both to God in one body through the cross. And then it said in verse 17 that he came and preached peace, not only to those far off, but those who were near. That's another reference to Jew and Gentile. So you put all that together, and these verses in Ephesians are saying this to us. Jesus came to bring peace to the world, not through political means, but by reconciling men to their maker, And when they're reconciled to their maker, they're also reconciled to one another. Vertical reconciliation leads to horizontal reconciliation. Or vertical peace between us and God leads to horizontal peace, peace between humans, right? Now, I want to be clear, when the word peace comes up, people, people's minds go in a lot of different directions. We could talk about all kinds of peace. Peace means a whole lot of different things to different people. Are we talking about peace of mind? Are we talking about peace from a war? What are we talking about when we say that Jesus came to bring peace? Do we, do we just mean that Jesus brings us a sense of peace in our minds, in our emotions? Is it a feeling or is there something more concrete to it than that? In other words, is Jesus just one of many ways that people sort of derive some kind of inner peace to get through their life? Or has God done something through Jesus that actually brings about peace, a peace that's grounded in reality rather than a feeling? Well, as it turns out, the Scriptures answer that question very clearly. And for us to appreciate what the Bible teaches about this peace that Jesus brought, we need to understand, first of all, the state of things. To talk about someone bringing peace presupposes that there's a lack of peace to begin with, right? It presupposes a state of unrest or turmoil. In fact, it's worse than that in this case. It's not mere unrest or turmoil. The Bible presents us, mankind, all of us, as God's enemies, 
Do you realize that? And that frames this entire issue of peace, okay? That helps us realize the value and context of the kind of peace that is brought to us by Jesus. So this peace that we're talking about today, it has to do with reconciling enemies. That has to do with um, extinguishing the beef between two enemy parties. The two warring parties are sinful men on one side and a holy God on the other. And so I'm saying all this to say we really won't appreciate or even understand this peace that Jesus brings until we better realize the situation that we're in because of sin and realize that we're enemies of God by default, okay? We've all probably heard it said before, you need a personal relationship with God. And I know what people mean by that. I don't fault them for saying that. But the truth be told, we all have a personal relationship with God, question is, what kind of relationship is it? Is it one of hostility or is it one of peace? And as we talk about this, I hope it will hit you freshly if you're familiar with some of the passages that we're looking at and, and you're familiar with the way that the Bible refers to us as enemies of God. But I want you to try to hear it freshly and I would say my guess is that none of us have really thought this through as deeply as we should, if I might say it that way. And I don't claim to have some sort of deeper understanding of it than anybody else have, but I think that, again, most likely most of us have given precious little time to thinking about this because we... We generally don't dwell too much on the bad news. We jump to the good real quick, and that actually takes away from the goodness of the good news. So what I'd like to do today is to borrow some thoughts from a brother in Christ named Jonathan Edwards, the 18th century pastor. Many of you were here on uh, Sunday evenings in the summertime when we had our we called it the Historic Sermons of the Past series. And we had someone read some of the more famous sermons that were preached um, in the past couple hundred years. And one of them that we read was Jonathan Edwards' sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Well, I'm going to be drawing from another sermon today by Edwards called Men Naturally Are God's Enemies. He says this in that sermon, quote, men in general will own that they are sinners. There are few, if any, whose consciences are so blinded as not to be sensible that they have been guilty of sin. And most sinners will own that they have bad hearts. They will own that they do not love God as much as they should, that they are not so thankful as they ought to be for mercies and that in many things they fail. And yet, few of them are sensible that they are God's enemies. They do not see how they can truly be so called, for they are not sensible that they wish God any hurt 
or endeavor to do him any hurt, end quote. Edwards is saying it's one thing to admit you're a sinner, that you got a bad heart, that you don't love God as much as you should, that you aren't thankful to him for his mercies that he's given you, but there are sadly far less people. So in other words, it's another thing to understand yourself to be what Scripture calls you an enemy of God. And I don't know if that language strikes anybody in here as too strong or not, but I want you to notice with me, and I'm going to try to bring some of these on the screen to prevent you from having to find them all, but write them down if you would. I want you to notice what Scripture says in Romans 5.10, for instance. It says this, For if while we were enemies, there it is, if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. Can't be too much more plain than the first half of that verse, right? That before we are reconciled to him, we are enemies of God. Listen also to Romans 8, 7. I don't have a slide for this one. Just listen to it. Romans 8, 7. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. And that word hostile there means at enmity with God. Opposed to him like an enemy. Colossians 1.21 uses that same wording of hostile when it says, And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. And then in Ephesians 2.3, the Bible calls us by nature children of wrath. To be a child of wrath means you're God's enemy. Nahum 1-2 says, God keeps wrath for his enemies. So this idea of being God's enemy, that man, by default, every human being, is an enemy of God, that's not an overstatement by fire and brimstone preachers or something. It is the exact language of Scripture. And Edward says that we're not just enemies in some vague sense of the term. We actually live as enemies of God. And so I want to take five points from his sermon and kind of explain them to us and use this to help us. He explains how we are enemies of God. In his words, the, the heading over this section in his sermon is, in what respects natural men are God's enemies? So he says, first of all, <clears throat> our enmity with God appears in our judgments. We are enemies of God in our judgments. In other words, in our fallen state, we don't esteem God. Edward says it this way, Men are ready to entertain a good esteem of those with whom they are friends. They are apt to think highly of their qualities, to give them their due praises, and if there be defects, to cover them. 
But of those to whom they are enemies, they are disposed to have mean or low thoughts. They are apt to entertain a dishonorable opinion of them. They will be ready to look contemptibly upon anything that is praiseworthy in them. So it is with natural men towards God. We might say it this way, the language of our hearts in our fallen state is the same of Pharaoh who said, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? Exodus 5.2 Our hearts do not love God in our natural state. We don't prize him. We don't value him. We don't fear him. We worry very much about slighting one of our fellow creatures, dishonoring them in some way. We worry about that, especially if they're in somebody, or if they're in a position of authority or power over, this, over us. We worry about offending them in some way, but we have no problem offending God at every turn. We're much more afraid of offending one of our equals than we are about offending our maker. This is true about every single human being in our natural, unconverted state. God is last and lowest in our judgments. In this way, we show ourselves to be an enemy of God. Number two, Edward says, we are enemies of God in what we relish. We don't use that term a lot, but he's using the word relish in the sense of what do we delight in? And he says things like, in our natural state, we have a distaste for God. What we know of him, which isn't much, doesn't please us. We don't take any delight in contemplating who he is. We don't see any loveliness or beauty in him. His attributes don't cause us to worship him. They just cause us to be anxious. We, when we find out that he's omniscient, for instance, it bothers us rather than impresses us. We are not pleased to find out that he's sovereign and he does whatever he pleases. We don't even like his mercy when we find out that it's a mercy that he only shows to those who come to Christ in faith and repentance. We're like the man struggling out on the storm-tossed waters who's been tossed a life preserver, and he says, I don't like that one. Can you throw me another one? Can't you give me some other choices? Instead of being thankful for the life preserver that he's thrown, he finds fault with the one showing him mercy. And in our fallen minds, we, we just despise the exclusivity of Christ's claims. We think, well, God, why are you like that? You would be so much more loving if you saved everyone in a way that they wanted to be saved. And this exclusive claim by Christ to be the one and only way to the Father just seems so restrictive to the natural man. So we don't relish Him. We don't relish His power. We don't relish His grace. We don't relish His mercy. We don't relish His sovereignty. 
And I guess if somebody would ask us why, well, it's just not how we would do things. And we don't relish communion with him either. We notice that when Adam sinned in the garden, don't we? What happened to Adam and Eve? Right after they sinned, what was one of the most immediate effects that we see? They hid from the presence of God. They didn't want to commune with him any longer. His presence to them was off-putting now. There was a holiness that made their sinfulness very uncomfortable. Matter of fact, that's why Jesus said the world hated him because he was the light that exposed their sin. Listen to what he says in John 3, 19 and 20. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. And so we who love darkness, we actually relish the darkness rather than the light and makes it more evident that we are indeed enemies of God. Edward says, in addition to that, number three, we are enemies of God in our wills. What we will or we might say what we want, the things that we want, that we desire, are actually averse to God. In other words, what He loves, we hate. What He hates, we love. Does that sound like the very definition of an enemy to you? He says, this is good. What do unregenerate fallen people do, we hate that. He says, this is evil. What do we do? We love that thing, whatever it is. Our will is broken and dysfunctional. Martin Luther, the reformer, put it this way, our will is in bondage to sin. He wrote a book entitled, On the Bondage of the Will. I guess lots of people think we have a truly free will, but is that a biblical concept? Yes, we, we do what we want to do. We're free in that sense. But what the Bible teaches over and over again is what we actually want to do is sin. So we're slaves to sin. We're dead in sin. Those are all biblical terms and phrases. And we read the verse earlier from Romans 8, 7. Let me quote it again. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Notice that language. The mind that is set on the flesh, which is the mind of every unsaved person, does not submit to, the God, to God's law. And it's not just that we won't submit, it's that we can't submit. There's a big difference. That's a statement of ability. We don't have the ability within ourselves to submit to God because we are slaves to sin. Our will is broken. We're enemies of God. 
in our wills. Edwards also says, natural men are enemies to God's government. They are not loyal subjects, but enemies to God. They are entire enemies to God's authority. We don't want to be accountable to God, in other words. We don't desire that. We don't enjoy that. Are you grasping that this is you apart from the grace of God? Perhaps this is you right now because you don't yet know Christ, but this is certainly all of us apart from the work of Christ in our hearts. But stay with me because good news is coming, okay? Another way that we're enemies of God is that we are enemies of God in our affections, Edward said. When you love someone, you want to be with them, don't you? What does the natural man want God to do, though? Is he bothered at all if God just leaves him alone? He's not troubled at all. But let God, you know, touch his conscience and bring some sort of conviction in his mind over something he's done wrong, and his heart quarrels with God. He, he uh, rises to his own defense that he's either done nothing wrong or that he isn't as bad as some other person that he knows. So the natural man all of us apart from God's grace would be perfectly content if God would just stay out of our business, which is a telltale sign that we have no affections for God. There's even a verse in Proverbs that's, <clears throat> excuse me, that says this, Proverbs 19.3, when a man's folly brings his way to ruin, his heart rages against the Lord. That is what the natural man does. God is scarcely in his thoughts at all because he just doesn't have any affections for him. And yet, when he gets himself into trouble because of his own foolishness, what does his heart do? It rails against who? Against God. His heart doesn't say, man, I've been foolish. Look where my foolishness got me. Instead, he says, how could God let this happen to me? If this is the type of God he is, I don't want anything to do with him. Or maybe I don't believe in a God that would let this happen to me or, or to anyone else. And he goes into full-blown atheism, perhaps. Such are the affections of the natural man who is an enemy to God. That is what we all are by default. And lastly, Edward says we are enemies of God in our practice. We are actively engaged in war against God by how we live. It's not just in here or in here. We live it out. We're interested in building our own kingdom rather than God's. We won't submit to his rules or his commandments, as we've already seen. We don't seek him. The Bible says instead we seek out many schemes Ecclesiastes 7.29. We seek out new ways to sin against him, in other words. We're, we're very active in our sin. It's not just a slip up now and then, right? It's constant. 
In fact, the things that characterize the people around the time of the flood still characterize us today. You remember what it said about those people? Genesis 6, 5, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Was man exceptionally evil back then and somehow we've gotten better on our own since then? (laughs) No, that is a description of all fallen mankind in every era. And it's God's grace that he doesn't destroy us like he did back then. I hope, though, that I've convinced you, if you weren't already convinced, by the help of Jonathan Edwards, of course, by Scripture itself, that you really are, apart from Christ, a full-blown enemy of God. And so am I. This isn't only true for just the most notorious sinners who've ever lived. This is true of every single human being who has ever been born since Genesis chapter 3, with the notable exception of the Lord Jesus. Each and every person born into the world automatically at enmity with his maker. Our judgments are out of whack. We don't judge things rightly. We don't value the right things. Our delights are in sin. Our will desires all the things that would bring dishonor to God instead of honor. Our affections are for our own pleasures and enjoyments rather than God's glory. And everything we do because of all that acted out in reality demonstrates that on our own, we are of our father, the devil. That's what Jesus told unbelievers who thought they were pretty good people. He said, You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. That's us apart from Christ, enemies of God, separated from fellowship with him, not even desiring that fellowship. It's not like we want it and God won't give it to us because we're enemies. We don't even desire it. We despise him. We loathe his commandments as restrictive on us. We hate what he loves. We love what he hates. I hope you get this picture. I'm belaboring it a little bit. And all this is actually true whether you feel it or not. If we think back and we say, you know, I hear what you're saying. I I see the verses that, that mention us as being enemies. I just... You know, maybe that's talking about a little some, something different because I wasn't that hostile in my mind and heart. I really didn't hate God like you're talking about. Remember what sin does to us, okay? Our discernment is way out of whack. We can't even accurately assess ourselves. We give ourselves the benefit of the doubt. And just because we don't feel ourselves to be an enemy of God doesn't mean anything. We need an objective standard to tell us what reality is, and that's what the Bible is. It gives us reality, and the reality is we're enemies of God. Here's another way of saying it before I get to the good news. Another way of saying all this is that there are no neutral people. No one in this world who has ever lived is indifferent 
to God. You're either in God's family as an adopted child of His by His grace, or you're an enemy of God. There is no in-between. That's just the facts of what sin has done to us as a human race. So I told you there was good news. And I had to give you all the rough news before the good news will be appreciated. You really don't give the cure to a patient before you diagnose their disease because the patient won't really think they need the cure, right? So here's the beauty of what we read earlier in Ephesians 2. God has sent His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to make peace with His enemies. Think about that. Think about the fact that He was the initiator of that peace. Not us. Let that blow your mind for a second, because it blows mine. He was the offended party. We were the, run, the ones that rebelled against him, not the other way around. But which of the two parties is the one who seeks out the peace? It's him. It's God. He comes after us in grace. If that isn't mercy and kindness, I don't know what is. Now, how does he bring peace to us? It wasn't just that he showed up. And all of a sudden, anyone who looks at that baby in the manger all of a sudden receives peace. How did he accomplish this peace? Ephesians 2.16 said it. He accomplished it through the cross. Colossians 1.20 says the same thing. We read it in our scripture reading earlier when we all read out loud. The last part of it said, He made peace by the blood of his cross. So when Jesus took on his human nature and human flesh, he was doing that for this purpose, so that he might die as a representative man for sin and thus bring peace between God and men. Just like, think back to Adam. Just like Adam was the representative of the human race in the beginning, so is Christ our representative now. When Adam sinned, sin came upon all human beings. The term for that, if you want one, is Adam was our federal head. Adam's sin brought sin upon us all. Now we're all sinners. Sin is just embedded inside of our nature now because of his sin. And we needed another representative who would come along and do what Adam failed to do, which was to obey God and do as God instructed him. So Christ comes, and he acts as that new representative man. And where Adam failed, Christ perfectly succeeds. He was perfectly obedient to every point of the law of God. And then he goes to the cross, and there he bears upon himself the wrath of God that was due to us, he bears the wrath of every sinner who will ever come to him in faith. Meaning that this new representation by Christ is very important. 
It is not automatically applied to every human being as if every single human being is going to have their sins paid for by Jesus. The Bible is very clear that those who are forgiven and those who are justified before God are only those who take hold of Christ by faith, okay? There has to be repentance from sin, a, a trusting in Christ for their salvation. Romans 5.1 tells us who has this peace. It isn't every human being. It's those who have been justified by faith in Christ. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so, um, within the context of everything we're talking about today, what Christ was doing on the cross was removing what had made us enemies of God in the first place. He was removing the root cause of the problem, sin. Sin broke the good relationship that we had with God. Christ comes and removes that. There's a barrier because of sin. And God removes that barrier when someone comes to Christ in repentance and faith. That's why we see the word reconciliation in Scripture, by the way. When two parties reconciled, it wasn't like they were just on vacation and didn't see each other for a while. They were at odds. And Scripture says that we are reconciled to God through Christ. These two warring parties brought back together again, and the result is peace. And it's not some inner peace that just ends up being this feel-good emotion, but we're talking about real peace. I like to say it this way. This peace has a judicial foundation. It is an official peace between the repentant sinner and God. So that cuts out whether you feel it or not, right? Whether you feel it today or not, Christian, has no bearing on the reality of this peace. Because if you are in Christ, the war between you and God is over. And it's not a ceasefire, a temporary ceasefire. It's a total end to the war. It's shalom, as the Jews would say. That's why the Bible can refer to Jesus as the Prince of Peace, Isaiah 9. It's why the angels sang what they sang to the shepherds, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased, they said. And the fact of the matter is, those with whom he is pleased are those who have Christ dwelling within them. God's not pleased with our works. He's pleased with Christ's. He's pleased with all those who are clothed with Christ's righteousness too. The righteousness that they receive by placing their faith in him. And when you have that kind of peace that we're talking about, that trumps every other kind of peace that you've ever been looking for. This is an unrivaled peace. There's nothing like it. Jesus said, peace I leave with you my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, 
neither let them be afraid. This is real peace. The reason Christians can and do have peace in their hearts is not because they've, it's not because we've somehow learned to suppress all the inner turmoil in our hearts and minds. It's not because we've perfectly mastered how to govern our emotions all the time. It's not because we do more breathing exercises or counting to 10 more than others and we've learned to suppress our anger. You know, it has nothing to do with it. The Christian's peace is grounded in a solid judicial peace in the court of God that's been achieved for us by Jesus who came to live and die and rise for us while we were still his enemies. Praise the Lord. Matthew Henry said, See, sin breeds a quarrel between God and man. Christ came to take up that quarrel and bring it to an end. And when a believer takes up that thought, meditates on that, that Christ has achieved for him perfect peace with God, then what happens is worship rises from his soul. And that's my goal with all of this today. Just to induce worship in your heart to the one who bought your peace with God by his blood. May God cause it to be so. Be still and know this peace. The merits of your great high priest have bought your liberty. Rely then on his precious blood. Don't fear your banishment from God since Jesus sets you free. Amen. Let's pray and thank him. Father in heaven, we come to you by the merits of our Lord Jesus Christ. We are not worthy to even have your ear right now, but we do, only through what he has done. And you tell us to come before your throne of grace with confidence, and so we do. Lord, what can we say to these things? While we were still your enemies, you sent your son to reconcile us back to yourself. The Lord Jesus suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. 1 Peter 3.18 This makes Christmas worth celebrating, Lord. None of the lesser joys of Christmas are worth anything without this overriding joy that we were once your enemies and now we're seated at your table. And for this we say with all our hearts, thank you. In Jesus' name.